Thank you. I'm so excited to be in front of you guys tonight. And I just have really loved this place. I thank all of you that prayed for me this week too, because I really felt your prayers. As some of you can see, I'm large and in charge. Uh, my name is Camille Knopf. I'm married to one of the two Eric's. I'll let you guess which one. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm married to Eric Knopf, the one with a little bit more hair. Uh, and um, yeah, I feel really privileged to be in front of you guys tonight. Um, for those of you that have never heard me speak or don't know me, um, I just want to tell you a little bit about myself, um, my identity, first of all, no matter what happens in my circumstances or what happens to the people around me or what happens to where I live, I'm first and foremost is just a daughter of God, just like we're all sons and daughters of him. He is our father and that's my identity. But I have some really cool jobs I get to do uh, while I'm here. And one is being Eric's wife, which is never boring. <laughs> Sometimes I wish it was, but no, it's the best decision I ever made. Um, I'm also a mother now. I have an almost two-year-old daughter, Scarlett. And she's getting more and more fun as time goes by. And I have another one on the way. I don't always look like this. And, um, and then my career. I have a career that I love. I'm actually a veterinarian. I specialize in horses. Um, I treat horses about 99% of the time. And I love it. I don't, well, I don't always love it, but it's never boring. And it gives me lots of great stories and lots of opportunity to see my husband uh, squirm. Yeah. And uh, I do know how to castrate very well. Um, I do it for a living. Um, my husband treats me very well, too. I don't know if they correlate, but... Um, so those of you that have heard me speak before, you probably expect me to tell you some kind of like disgusting story or a shocking story, because that's pretty much what I always do. And you're not incorrect, I'm gonna do it again. Uh, so let's dive right in. So this is all true. I'm telling the truth. So two weeks ago, I had a client call. This is a very normal routine call. She calls and she said, her complaint was that her, she went out, she looked at her horse, and her horse's penis was enormous. And it was swollen, and she was super concerned. I mean, she was texting me photos of it. She was freaking out. <laughs> this didn't faze me at all. This is part of my regular job. I said, oh, that looks concerning. I should go out and see it. So I go out, I see her horse, his name is Kino. And sure enough, his penis is infected. And I treated it, I diagnosed what was wrong, I treated it, I put him on the appropriate medication and knew he would be fine. It just, I will admit, it was pretty grotesque looking and the poor owner was horrified. Well, that night I was actually here at church and I was at Christ Life, plug for Christ Life. And I saw my phone ringing and I saw there was a different client of mine. And this client had a horse that uh, was in the hospital at the time at UC Davis, very, very ill. And so I could see she was calling, calling. It's kind of like late in the evening. I'm at church. So I realized I need to take this call. So I get up out of Christ's life. I go out to the foyer of Capital Christian here, that huge foyer. 
and I'm out there and there's like a few people milling around in the foyer. If I take the call and I talk to the client and she's, you know, very distressed. She's talking about her horse who's very ill and I was kind of walking through with her through some of the decisions and the things she was gonna have to decide. And at the end of the conversation, she goes, oh, hey, Camille, I heard that my friend's horse, Kino, I heard you saw him today and he's really sick. Is he gonna be okay? And I could tell she was really worried about her friend's horse too. And so I tried to be really lighthearted and I was just like, I was like, oh, Sue, I was like, don't worry about Kino. His biggest problem is that he has a gigantic penis and he is totally gonna survive that. Well, at that moment, one of the pastors walked by and he turns and he looks at me because literally all he hears me to say is, oh, he just has a gigantic penis, he'll survive. And he turns and looks at me and I put my hand over the phone and I'm like, oh, no, 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 I I'm talking to a client. <laughs> and <laughs> the look got worse on his face. This is what the pastor's here again. I'm talking to a client and I'm like, it's a horse, it's a horse, it's a horse. And he literally goes, Sure, and he closes the door to his office. This literally happened two weeks ago. So part of the reason I told you that story was because I like to shock you guys a little bit. And my husband's my favorite victim, so I just get to look, look at his face and see him look mortified. But I also told the story for a bigger point than that. And I think it's because I told that story to kind of help you self-examine how you felt when I was mentioning the word penis in church. Because I'm guessing that some of you felt a little bit uncomfortable. And why is that? Maybe just because you're surprised to hear it. Maybe I just don't look like someone that talks about those things all the time. Or maybe it sounded crude or like a, a dirty word or like a bad word. Well, a little bit on my background, I grew up in a physician's home. And when he, my dad was home for dinner, pretty much all we talked about the dinner table were stories from the emergency or surgical uh, suites where he'd been working. And he was really passionate about his job. And so he would tell us stories every night at dinner about like what people put in their different orifices and how you had to surgically extract things and body parts. And we just sat there in fascination. And I remember as a little girl hearing him talk about things that would probably seem really nasty to you and thinking, oh my gosh, I can't believe that's going on in humanity. All I do is go to school and I go to church and I'm a little girl, I ride my horse and here's all this crazy stuff going on just down the street. And so it became something that was like very comfortable for me. And my husband, as I've learned, and I suspect most of you probably didn't have conversations like that at the dinner table. You probably didn't talk about body parts or what people chose to do with those body parts or even basic anatomy. And in fact, you may have grown up in a home where you've been conditioned that sex and sexual parts are dirty, that they should never be called by their proper names, and that really you should never even mention them at all. Well, we now have a toddler, as I mentioned, and she's in the really fun phase of life where she wants to know the name of everything because she's learning how to talk. And by everything, I mean everything. She, there's nothing off limits. She wants to know the name of everything. And it's been really fun for me to think about the way we're gonna teach our children about sexuality and do it in a way where she learns about sex in a healthy context. That sex is beautiful, our body parts are beautiful, they're created by God, they're given to us as a gift. And even though they're only meant to be used in the context of marriage, 
in no way is sex dirty or your sexual parts dirty. And this really made me think, and especially seeing people's reactions when I tell stories and then seeing my toddler as she's really just curious about what makes that person look different than that person or that dog is different than that dog. And it made me think how we so often can inadvertently place shame on something that doesn't warrant it. Just like putting shame on sexual body parts, even though they're body parts and in of of themselves, they're not dirty. For example, and I'm sorry for the mom example, but it's kind of like in my life right now, so it's easy for me to say. The other day I was changing Scarlett's diaper and it was really nasty. Like it was not number one. It was a nasty diaper. It was dirty (laughs) diaper. And I was changing her diaper and as you can see, I'm pregnant. And all of a sudden, it was just the combination of, I felt like I was in this really small room, and I was changing her diaper, and I started throwing up while changing her diaper. And poor Scarlett, she's laying there in this very vulnerable position, having her diaper changed, and she's watching her mother throw up. And she's just kind of like, has this look of confusion on her face. Now, what do you think would happen if every time I changed Charlotte's diaper, I had that kind of visceral reaction? Or I said, ew. I mean, what would she see and what would she hear if every time I did that, that's what she saw and heard? Well, she probably at some point would start thinking like, I'm the cause of this reaction. Like, I'm dirty. Like, this is what's happening. Every time my diaper is being changed, like, I'm being seen as dirty. And this isn't something that I take lightly because at the moment I was realizing if this happened every time I changed her diaper, I could be planting a seed inside of her or of a sense of shame that really her body parts are dirty. So that's what I wanna talk to you tonight about is shame. And if you're a human being at some point in your life and perhaps still today, you have felt shame. And I believe that this is perhaps one of the biggest reasons that we as Christians can live defeated lives and not see the victory that we want to see because of the shame in our lives. The Bible actually mentions shame specifically 128 times. So it's something that obviously God wanted to get across to his people. Shame is one of the enemy's favorite weapons because it makes us feel dirty, it makes us feel unwanted, unworthy, and it can make us lose confidence in our relationship with Jesus. Jesus died on the cross for our sins. He came to cleanse us of all our sins. But in that act, in that act of cleansing us of all our sins, he also came to free us from the shame of all our sins. So he came to cleanse us from all our sins and he came to free us for the shame of all our sins. So I just wanted to find for you guys what is shame. And I feel like I first have to mention the feeling of guilt because I think people confuse guilt and shame as the same thing. But guilt is actually recognizing when we've done something wrong. Guilt is seeing, I did something wrong, it prompts me to repent, ask forgiveness, clean up my mess, and then move on, guilt-free. Guilt is simply dealing with a sin. It's knowing that that sin is not who you are. And as Christians, we should have the tools to examine a sin, clean it up, and move on, the sense of freedom and liberty. It's done. And this is very different from shame. Shame actually isn't looking at a sin. It's actually looking at ourselves as a failure for what we've done or what we think we've done. 
It causes us to dwell on sins that have already been forgiven. Do any of these statements sound familiar to you guys? I am no good. I am a failure. I am weak. I am worthless. I am nothing. I am unappreciated. I am insignificant. I am a bad person. I am dirty. Sadly, I could go on and on and on and on with that list. Well, here's the deal. If you ever think those things about yourselves, that is shame. If you ever think any of those statements, I'm not good enough, I'm unworthy, I just did that, I'm a dirty person. That is what shame is. It's usually a very private, it's a very ugly feeling that there's something wrong with us. That if people really knew who we are, if they really knew what we were thinking, if they really knew what was going on inside of us or what we've done, they wouldn't want anything to do with us. And usually when we feel shame, we do everything we can to not be exposed, right? You don't want people to know those things about you. And sadly, the root of shame actually begins in childhood. So where does shame come from? Well, often we start feeling a sense of shame or we start developing a sense of shame when we're small children, when we're in childhood. And it could stem from anything from a horrible trauma to something like being told that you're stupid or you're wrong for spilling milk or not getting straight A's. And it begins to become ingrained in us that there's something terribly wrong with us. If you hear those things over and over again, like if I told Scarlett every time she changed her diaper, oh, this is disgusting, there starts to become something ingrained in you that there must be something wrong with me because this is what I'm hearing. And shame can even be formed when a child's basic needs of love and affection are not being met on an ongoing basis. In fact, the desire to be loved can start feeling shameful in itself. And here's the deal with shame. Shame is built on deception. It is built on a lie about who you actually are. If you feel shame, you're actually believing a lie about yourself because shame is never true. So let's go back to, I said all those I statements. I'm unworthy, I am dirty, I am insignificant, I'm a bad person. I told you those are shame statements. And now I'm telling you shame is never, ever true. It's never true. It's a total lie. So if you feel that statement, it's a lie. It's not true. And that's what shame is. Um, if, you either, if any of you have heard Eric and I uh, speak on a regular basis or you know us personally, you know we have been to therapy. <laughs> we are believers in therapy. We are both very strong personalities. It's healthy for us to have a third party. We happen to pay our third party lots of money. Um, but it's been good for us because we're here. <laughs> And we're happy to be here. And while over the years we've been to therapy for our own relationship, we actually have gone to therapy to help us navigate relationships with other people in our lives. And in the course of that, we've really been educated on different types of um, personality disorders, like psychiatric disorders. Because um, our therapist is kind of figuring, oh, there might be some people in your life that actually have what we'd consider in psychology to be like a mental disorder. And you can't deal with them like normal people, unfortunately. And I was really fascinated to learn about the disorder of narcissism. Now, there are people that are narcissistic, and that's, as we know, is, you know, vain or selfish or self-centered people. But there are actually people that 
suffer from a psychiatric disease, they consider it a disease uh, in the psychiatric world, of narcissism. And honestly, I mean, it's a huge disease and there's a lot of stuff you can read about it. But what really struck me is that there's one thing in common that they've decided, and this is in medicine, I'm not talking about church, this is in medicine that they've determined is in common with every person that suffers from narcissism. They all have in common a deep-seated root of shame in their life. So they all have in common. And what happens when you're dealing with someone that suffers from narcissism, this is one of the key signs that they're suffering from narcissism, is if you know someone and say they have bad behavior or they're treating you poorly, and you go, hey, can you not treat me that way? Like, I felt like you treated me like such and such. Like, if you could just treat me like this, that would be great. Or you see them doing some really obvious wrong thing in their life and you kind of go in and go, hey, as your friend, like, I don't think you should be making those decisions. Well, if you say that to a narcissistic, a person that suffers with narcissism, you actually make their behavior worse because what you do is you flare up that sense of shame. And narcissists live their entire lives trying to keep that shame as stuffed down as possible. And so their behavior becomes worse when they feel like you're actually peeking into that window of shame that they feel in their lives. And they'll do whatever it takes and whatever it costs to not feel shame. And while I'm not saying that any of us suffer from narcissism, I feel like that was such an eye-opening thing to me because I think on some level, we all kind of feel that way about our dirty little secrets. That if somebody starts peeking in at what we really feel or we think they're peeking in, we do everything we can to keep it stuffed down. So the bummer about shame that we accumulate over time is that it actually never goes away unless we specifically address it. And we as humans are amazingly capable at stuffing things down and having things go dormant. And we can actually stuff those feelings of shame down so we don't feel them for a while but they never go away. And when they typically surface is in times of stress. So here's some examples. I think all of us will be able to relate to at least one of them. You're diagnosed with a serious illness. A lot of people, when they're diagnosed with a serious illness, it flares up inside of them these feelings of, I always knew there was something wrong with me. Or I always knew that I wasn't as healthy as other people. Or I always knew I didn't deserve to live a full life. Or when a relationship goes poorly, I was dumped really hard in college. And I will tell you, I can relate to any of you that have been dumped really hard. It was painful. And it definitely stirred up these feelings of like, what's wrong with me? Like, I must be unworthy. I must not have been significant to this person. These feelings of shame came up. Or you're fired from your job. Or something at your job goes poorly. I know for me, I, I have a great job, but there are cases that go well and there are cases that don't go well. And it has been a huge battle for me to learn that if the case goes poorly or it goes well, it doesn't change who I am and how I feel inside. And that's been a huge lesson for me to learn because I, for a long time, case went well, I felt like a million bucks, case really sucked, I'm a horrible veterinarian. And I immediately would go to that place of shame. So if we have shame, and it doesn't go away on its own, unless we specifically address it, how do we deal with it? Well, fortunately we have Jesus and we have the Bible and he's awesome at giving us really great examples of how to deal with pretty much anything in life. And Jesus himself was actually placed in a situation where shame was being dumped on him. And when Jesus faced his death by crucifixion and he's on the cross, 
it says in Hebrews 12:2, and just write down this scripture reference if you're taking notes, because I'll reference a few scriptures and they'll be great for you to go back over whenever you're feeling like those I statements are starting to come back up. And it says in Hebrews 12:2 that he endured the cross and scorned the shame. He endured the cross and scorned the shame. Hebrews 12:2. So it tells us here that Jesus actually didn't avoid the suffering of the cross. He endured the pain. He went through the suffering. And if you remember, I spoke about a year and a half ago on the importance of processing pain. And that was a painful talk for me to give, but the importance of processing pain and unless we fully process pain, we'll never actually get out of the pain and get free of it. And here we see God, he's on the cross. He's being tortured. He's dying and it says here that he endured the cross. He did not resist the cross. He endured all that suffering and all that pain. However, he rejected the shame. And all the people there at the time were trying to heap all this shame on him. At that moment, if you read about the crucifixion, at that moment, he was being treated like a person of little or no value. Every single one of us here there's no way none of us are exempt from this, have had a moment in our lives where we felt like we were being treated of little or no value. For many of us, it messes with our minds. It makes us question our sense of self or identity, like, gosh, I'm being treated like SHT right now. Are they right or are they not right? We've all been there. Maybe it's in a workplace, maybe it's at school, maybe you have a friend that's starting to treat you that way. Jesus was treated that way too. He was treated like someone that had little or no value. But the message of shame in Jesus' circumstance, that you have little or no value, was a lie. And Jesus knew that, and he actually never accepted it. It tells us right there in the scripture. He was 12 too. He scorned the shame. And here's what's interesting about that story, about what Jesus did. He endured the pain. He scorned the shame. Is that we actually tend to do the opposite in both those circumstances. We tend to reject the suffering. Don't most of us live lives trying to avoid pain? We deny it, we run from it, we tune it out, but we tend to embrace the shame as if it were truth. I know I do that. I'm like, I have a painful circumstance in my life. I do everything I can to get out of that painful circumstance. But someone tells me I'm crap, I'm going, maybe I am crap, I'm not sure. <laughs> and God did the opposite. Shame is a lie. And none of us is ever less than None of us are unlovable, beyond repair, or worthless. We are loved and cherished by a healing, saving, redeeming God. And letting go of shame is important because shame leads us to destructive places. Shame keeps us focused on how bad we feel about ourselves. You, when you feel crummy, you kind of think about how you feel crummy. And when we're feeling and focusing on how bad we feel about ourselves, we're actually missing out on a lot of stuff God's doing around us. Shame keeps us immobilized because it's based in the belief that we are beyond help. Because if you really believe those shameful statements, you really believe you probably can't be helped. And so we become frozen in life. How many people have you met that you go, gosh, that person is so smart or they're so talented in that area. Like, why are they doing anything with it? I bet you a million bucks that they feel some shame inside and it's totally keeping them frozen. And shame pushes us to isolate ourselves. 
because we feel exposed. You don't wanna be exposed when you feel ashamed. You wanna feel safe. I'm gonna give you another example in my own life. It's kind of, it's actually very embarrassing. It just happened and it highlighted for me two things. It was my reaction to an event. And my reaction to the event, crumbs is spelled incorrectly. <laughs> but, <laughs> I am a spelling Nazi. Uh, there's a B between the M and the S. Uh, uh, I do edit things out of pure pleasure, so. Okay, there we go. Uh, all right, I'm about to tell you a really embarrassing story about myself, so everybody be serious. It's very embarrassing, and I'll just tell you with this story. Basically, my reaction to this event I had a poor reaction, and my poor reaction was something that I could definitely be shameful about, and also highlighted for me how I obviously felt shame about the event. So here's the deal. I think this is something that maybe some of us, it's like that whole, is everybody having a party and I'm not invited? That's basically what happened to me. Um, I had, we had a family friend that was getting married. This is literally this last month. And she invited everybody in my family except for me. And... So of course, I knew all about the wedding. I saw it on social media, because of course I'm Facebook friends with everybody that's going to the wedding. I heard all about it from my sister as it was like coming up. But I had honestly like really convinced myself that I didn't care. I mean, who needs to go to another wedding? Like wedding, wedding, wedding. I mean, Eric and I, we had one summer we were invited to 13 weddings. Like that was a long time ago. We're not invited that many anymore, but anyways. So um, I, so anyways, I really convinced myself that I'm fine. Like, I don't need to go to the wedding. I can do something else that's really fun. Well, my sister called me the day of the wedding and said, oh my gosh, Camille, like she planned this whole outdoor wedding. It's all outdoors and it's pouring rain. The dance floor is covered in mud. Like her dress is like mud all the way up. It's a disaster. And you know what I did? I laughed. Isn't that horrible? That was my immediate reaction. Was I la in fact, Eric was in the car and he was like, did I marry this person? That is being so evil right now. I laughed, that was like my visceral reaction. I was like, ah, wow, she didn't bite me, so serves her right. And that was literally my reaction. And I thought I was like totally over the whole situation. Well, fortunately, you guys, I've done a lot of work in my life. I have done a lot of Christ's life, I've done a lot of things, and I knew right away that was a bad reaction and that tells me something about where my heart is and where I'm feeling with the situation. And I obviously wasn't over it. And I obviously was believing some lies about myself that caused me to react that way. I was obviously not behaving like a confident daughter in God of like, this is who I am, I am loved by him, it doesn't matter what happens around me. But instead of act, I was acting like a pathetic little orphan. I was feeling insecure that I wasn't invited. I was feeling less than, I was feeling less important than the people that were invited. And I was obviously shameful about it because then I reacted in the way I did. And my reaction was a wake up call to myself that I had sinned, I needed to repent, I needed to turn to God, have him remind me of who I am and move on. So, in case any of you are thinking I'm perfect, I'm not. So, I know none of you did. Um, 
So I told you how God dealt with shame in the Bible. He obviously never even let it come in because he knew it was a lie. But how did Jesus deal with shame in other people? Because I just told you, I let the shame come in and it was inside of me. So how did God deal with, uh, Jesus deal with other people during the biblical times? Well, there's a passage in John, it's John chapter four, verses one through 40. And Jesus is actually traveling through Samaria and he stops at a well to rest and get something to drink. And he meets a woman at the well and he promptly breaks a bunch of cultural taboos by interacting with this woman. First of all, she's a woman, so he probably shouldn't be talking to her anyways. She's a Samaritan, which at that time, Jews despised the people group of the Samaritans. They were like a despised lower than group. And he asked her for something to drink, which would have been unclean for him to do at the time. But the part of this story, because it's obviously 40 verses long, this story, that I wanted to highlight was in the verses of this passage, which is John 4, 16 to 19. Go and get your husband, Jesus told her. I don't have a husband, the woman replied. Jesus said, you're right, you don't have a husband. You've had five husbands and you aren't even married to that man you're living with now. You certainly spoke the truth. Well, what we know we have here is a woman who's been, who has, is suffering from deep shame. She's despised by the Jews. She's a woman. She's a woman with no husband, just has some guy living with her. And here's a woman that would be considered by that society at that time to be worthless, unwanted, and probably considered lucky to have any man take her in at all. So what happened to the, well, the woman at the well that day? How did Jesus deal with this shameful person who had done these horrible things? Well, Jesus came to this well, not by accident, where she was, he met her where she was at, and he gave her living water. He gave her truth. And nothing she had done and nothing she could do in the future would disqualify her from receiving Christ and his living water. And Jesus was not ashamed of her. And especially in that day, there are a lot of things about this woman that would have been deeply shaming. He acknowledged the reality of the situation. He said, yeah, that is true. You're telling the truth. You have had five husbands and you're just living with the guy you're living with now. But he didn't condemn her. And he gave her living water. And as he said, he said, you'll never need to thirst again. Like, here's the truth. You'll never need to go without. So how does shame affect our relationship with God? If all of us have experienced shame at some point in our lives, it's inevitable, you know, that we've done something wrong, that we'll probably have those feelings. I wanna point out to you guys that feeling shame is not just like a personal problem or something you need to learn to get over, but it actually has a direct correlation to your relationship with God. How you deal with shame is directly related to how you view God and his place in your life. How you deal with shame is directly related to how you view God and his place in your life. Shame puts distance between us and God because it makes us feel unworthy to be in relationship with him. If you feel unworthy in a relationship, how can you even have intimacy? You can't. And a great example of this is good old Peter, one of Jesus's disciples. Do you know that Jesus actually named Peter and Peter means rock. He called Peter, you are my rock. And Peter is probably infamously known to Christians today as the disciple that denied Jesus three times at the time of Jesus' trial and crucifixion. 
In fact, Jesus told him he would. You will deny me three times before the rooster crows. That passage for your notes is Matthew 26, 69 to 75. So we kind of fast forward to that passage. Peter does it like Jesus predicted. He denies Jesus three times. And in Matthew 26, 75, it says, suddenly, Jesus' words flashed through Peter's mind. Before the rooster crows, you will deny three times that you even know me. And Peter went away, weeping bitterly at what he had done. So Peter ran away weeping because he realized that he had sinned. And now he believed that he wasn't what he thought he was. He wasn't a rock, one of Jesus' disciples. And he must have felt, I was reading this, and I realized that he must have felt a deep sense of shame because we see it in his action right afterwards. We can see in the scripture that it actually turned from who he was as a disciple, the identity that God gave him. And he returned to his old ways, his old identity. And guess what did he do? He went back to fishing. John 21, three says, Simon Peter said, I'm going fishing. And it made me think of how when there are times in my life where I feel like I'm not good enough, my default is, could be to go back to being who I used to be. Because if I'm not good enough, who, I am to be, how, who am I to live as a daughter of the king? If I'm not good enough, if I'm unworthy, if I'm dirty, if I'm this tainted person, well, I might as well go back to my old life. And that's exactly what Peter did. And how did this resolve? Did Peter fish away and go, okay, now I'm gonna go back to Jesus? No, it's actually Jesus that went to Peter, just like Jesus went to the woman at the well. And Jesus did not reject Peter, even though Peter, he didn't even originally believe the reports that Jesus had risen from the dead. And he was one of Jesus's main disciples. Peter had denied him and Peter even had turned back to his old ways. And how did Jesus speak to Peter? He didn't talk to Peter about what Peter did. He actually went to Peter and he asked Peter if he loved him. And he actually asked him if he loved him, if you read this passage, three times. And many theologians think, this was probably to address each time that Peter had denied Christ. And Jesus three times asked Simon Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? He then, after he asked Peter that, he recommissions Peter back to his true identity and he renews Peter's authority. This is all written out in John chapter 21, which I'd encourage all of you to read. It's an amazing story. Peter like kind of really screws up. And Jesus never condemns him for it. And he actually just sends him back out to be who he's called to be. So we've looked at these examples. How do we overcome shame? Well, I think first of all, we have to just recognize shame in our lives. Just like I saw, I didn't know I had shame until I saw my reaction to that circumstance, that ugly reaction. I knew it was shame. And I had to acknowledge it as a, a lie that I was believing in my life. But instead of meditating on the lie that the sin is who you are, we need to meditate on the truth. That's the basis of shame. It's believing something ugly is true. God's word is actually overflowing with promises that once we become Christians, everything in our past is null and void. Every sin that we've ever committed is null and void. Every sin we ever commit in the future is null and void. There's nothing about who we are that's ugly the moment we accept Jesus into our lives. And to behave any other way is actually completely contrary to God, 
his plan for us and the way he sees us. To behave any other way, to dwell on those sins is actually to behave completely contrary to who we are and how God sees us. Just, there are a trillion verses in the Bible that highlight this, but just a few for you guys. First John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Psalms 103, 12, as far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. Romans 8, 1, there's now no condemnation, no condemning to them which are in Christ Jesus. And Micah 7, 19, he will have compassion on us. He will subdue our iniquities, our sins, and he'll cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. They are no more. The second thing for overcoming shame is to get prayer. Prayer is really important because shame is a lie we believe about ourselves. And what can happen is if we have shame dwell on us for long enough, it actually can result in an incorrect thinking pattern in our life. And we can start to actually make other decisions through this filter of shame. And that's called a stronghold. And when you have a stronghold of shame in your life, it can be very difficult to see God for who he actually is. And it can actually be very difficult to see yourself for who you actually are and see that you're actually identifying with a lie. That's what a stronghold does. And it can be very tough when you have this stronghold on your life to see God for who he is, to see you who you really are and to see that you're actually identifying with a lie. And that's where prayer with other Christians is so important. You need to continue to press into a community. Hey, you know what, the way you're acting, like I think there's gotta be something in your life going on that is not lining up with who you actually are. And lastly, remind yourself of truth daily. It really is so true that what you focus on is what you become. So I'm not asking you to focus on lies you believe, focus on all the shame in your life. I actually want you to focus on the truth. Because even if you're focused on something, I'm not gonna do that, I'm not gonna do that anymore, I'm not gonna do that anymore. You still become what you're focusing on. We were created to walk free from shame all the way to the beginning of the Bible, Genesis 2.25, it says the man and woman were both naked and felt no shame. And that's talking about Adam and Eve in the garden. They felt no shame. That's how they were originally created to be, was without shame. Here's the deal, memories from our past that are painful, we will still have those memories, but we're not called to feel shame about them. There's a difference. Isaiah 54, four says, do not be afraid, you will not suffer shame. Do not fear disgrace, you will not be humiliated. You will forget the shame of your youth. It doesn't say you'll forget your youth. It says you'll forget the shame of your youth and remember no more the reproach of your widowhood. God's desire, his heart for you, is actually to take away your shame and pile you with blessings. Isaiah 61, seven says, instead of their shame, my people will receive a double portion. And instead of disgrace, they'll rejoice in their inheritance. And so they will inherit a double portion in their land and everlasting joy will be theirs. And you will walk free from shame when you trust your God, when we trust our God and keep our eyes on him. Romans 10, 11, anyone who trusts in him will never be put to shame. So I just wanna encourage all of you to become a student of freedom, 
to immerse yourself is what is true, to daily remind yourself about what is true, about who you are and about who our God is. And when we do that, we will totally live lives of freedom. So thanks for hearing me tonight.